Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how was your weekend? Good morning, Rachel. It was great. Just sat around in the beautiful Maryland sun, enjoying life. You? Ah, not in Maryland, but in Houston, yes. And it was lovely. Yeah. And what do we have today? Well, like, speaking of on? Maryland, speaking of Maryland, we've got Dustin Moody. He is a mathematician uh, in the News, NIST Computer Security Division. He leads what is the most fascinating thing I've ever heard of, a post-quantum cryptography project. Um, and it's almost a year ago, uh, July 22nd, 2020, they announced their top three candidates. Uh, it's a program that started in 2016. I can't wait to talk more about this. Welcome to the podcast, Dustin. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to talk about post-quantum cryptography. <laughs> Dustin, I am I am scraping every single fragment of IQ point I can for this interview. I'm just oh. pulling it up here. Sounds good. It should uh, be good. It's I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, honestly, let's let's go to the beginning, uh, Dustin, because you got you got your PhD. Um, like about 10-ish years ago, right? Um, and you mm-hmm. was on elliptic curves and their applications in cryptography. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, I studied math. I've always just loved math. And I went to graduate school and was working on a PhD. And you kind of, as you're getting your undergraduate, you explore a lot of topics. And elliptic curves are just were fascinating to me. Um, they're just described by a simple equation, but they have these cool properties. And then I found out, well, they're not just kind of neat mathematically, but they're actually used in cryptography. And so that was kind of really cool that this mathematical object is, I just kind of find beautiful is actually has a practical use in the real world today. And so that's kind of where I got my start. Do you almost see it as art? Like when when you look at it, I'm just trying to relate. Yeah. Um, Not my top subject in college, high school or any other area I had to play with it. No, yeah, there are so many things in math that you look at the patterns and and what holds true with numbers that it just seems like amazing and miraculous. And yeah, there's like beauty in it for sure. Okay, I, I've heard that described before. So an, an elliptic curve, I mean, I, I know all about it, but for, for some of, uh, for Rachel, could you give us just a, a, a layman's description of what we're talking about? Yeah. So if you go back to your high school algebra class and you think of like when you used to have to like plot lines and equations, um, a line is given by like y equals 2x plus 3 or something like that. And you already get a parabola like y equals x squared. Elliptic curve is given by an equation y squared equals x cubed plus 3x minus 1. I mean, you can choose different numbers, but it's a pretty simple equation. And if you plot it, it makes this kind of an interesting curve shape. Um, but it turns out that there's a way to take two points on the elliptic curve and define a way to add them, and you get another point on the elliptic curve, and that forms in math what's called a group, when you can kind of make this set that has this addition operation, and then you can kind of do interesting things with the group. Um, so that's what an elliptic curve is. It, it's pretty easy to just visualize. And then I don't know who figured it out that you could add points in this kind of interesting way. 
But then uh, once you discover that property, then you can find neat applications for that. And, and because we're dealing with mathematical properties, we can then apply it to things like cryptography is, what, yeah. is, is my guess. Yep. Much of the okay. cryptography we use today is based on different mathematical um, structures and, and techniques. So it's, it's kind of cool to see that happening. I'm thinking back to like Alan Turing and the Ultra Project with Enigma and everything or Joe Roquefort with Hypo. I mean, we've been doing this a long time. Yeah. And a lot of those people who were in cryptography back in World War II, um, a lot of them got their start in mathematics. Computers weren't around then, so they were inventing computer science at the time. But math and computer science have always gone hand in hand in cryptography. Okay. Now, okay. how did yeah. you find your way to NIST, which I think is so cool? I mean, just in that you're working on this project, but it, did they find you? <laughs> no, I, I was finishing graduate school uh, back around 2009, 2010, and that was a pretty tough economic times, unlike right now where it seems everyone is hiring back then. It, not very many people were hiring. And in searching for jobs, I, NIST had this posting up that they were looking for someone who specialized in cryptography. And that's been kind of a, a subfield of elliptic curve cryptography. And I saw that and I was like, well, they're looking for someone that's exactly like me. And I had no idea if I'd get it or not, but uh, NIST is a pretty well-known in cryptography and in other scientific right. areas. Yeah. Um, so I applied, and I was just what they were looking for, and so I got accepted and got a good start at NIST. It was wow. exciting. Now, do, do you get to work on, and, and share only what you can, obviously, but do you get to work on creating um, cryptography capability but also breaking it? Or does it go hand in hand or how does that work? Yeah, all of those are involved. And at NIST, we work on kind of the unclassified side of things. Uh, the NSA or other military, they do more classified things. Everything we do at NIST is, is um, unclassified. But when you are making a crypto system, you want it to be as secure as possible. So, yeah, you're always trying to find attacks and break ones. Uh, if someone designs a new crypto system, you'll only kind of trust it or have confidence if it survives several years of people trying to attack it and break it. And, and so, not be able to. Yep. Yep. Okay. And and that just takes time. And so at NIST, yeah, we we have we do research in trying to make crypto systems, trying to make them faster, trying to find attacks, trying to break them, all that kind of thing. And, and that's where quantum computing and, and quantum resistant encryp encryption now kind of come into play, correct? Yes. So quantum computers are kind of this pretty cool thing. Um, physicists and researchers have been toying around with them and trying to build one for a long time. Uh, they recognize that if you use some of the principles of quantum physics, as opposed to a lot of what most of us think was kind of like the physics that we learned in high school, quantum physics has got these really counterintuitive properties and some smart people figured out if you find a way to harness this, you could get some really um, hugely, uh, it, 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 I'm blanking on the right word, you get a huge increase in the computing power if you could put it into a computer. Um, so they've been making steady, steady progress on these quantum computers. They've been getting bigger and bigger over time. Um, they won't, I don't think they'll ever completely replace our, our standard classical computing. They don't solve absolutely every problem. They're good at certain problems, but those problems that they do, 
they turn out to be very, very effective. And one of those problems is that they can break some of the crypto systems that we use today. So that's why cryptographers um, paid attention to to that fact, which was discovered a couple decades ago. Yeah, we had episode 83 with Steve Grobman, the CTO of McAfee. And mm-hmm. he, he was talking, we, we were talking, we, we, we got onto quantum computing and, and, and he raised something that I had just never even thought of in, in cybersecurity. So I've got a cybersecurity background, but he, he said, all of the encryption we have today, you know, will be able to be broken by quantum computing in the future. And that's, and that's scary. It is, it is. And to, to qualify that just a little bit, there's different types of crypto systems we use today. It's broken into kind of two families. Uh, one family is called public key or asymmetric cryptography. Mm-hmm. And another part is called symmetric or secret key cryptography. And these quantum computers will completely break everything we use for public key cryptography. Okay. Um, just completely smash it. Symmetric AES, uh, they will be impacted, but um, we can correct for it without having to scrap the whole algorithm. We just have to use a longer key. For example, right now, a lot of people use AES and they use a 128-bit length key. Or 256, or yeah. If you go up to 256, you'll provide at least the same um, protection that AES-128 provides. So there's an impact, but it's, it's easier to deal with on the symmetric key side. It's the public key side that uh, we have to really do something about. And, and I don't think most IT professionals even think about it. It's, it's, is it FIPS 140-2? Check the box. We're good. Whether they mm-hmm. implement the capability or not, they're just like encrypted, check the box. But the reality is what you think is encrypted and protected today may not be tomorrow with the advent right. of quantum computing. And that just blew my mind. How do you protect secrets down the road? Uh, that, that's crazy. Well, isn't that it what is. you're working on, Dustin, as part of the post-quantum project? Perhaps? Yeah, that's the goal is so that we can, the goal of post-quantum cryptography is to get crypto systems that will protect against these quantum computers. But it, it really is crazy in that even if a quantum computer get built, you know, Google and Microsoft and IBM and these companies, they've got small ones, but they're not big enough that, that threaten any cybersecurity at all. But if you just think of the fact that somebody might just copy down your data, it's encrypted, so they can't read it, but they just copy it and hold on to it. Well, maybe they wait 10, 15 years until there is a quantum computer and they'll get access to your information. And that might be sooner than you would like. So you could be at risk from a quantum attack 10, 15 years in the future that you're not even thinking about today. What blew my mind right there. And then I started thinking, okay, so what is the lifespan of sensitive information? Is there any way to even categorize that? Obviously, it depends on what the information is. But what is that lifespan that you need to protect it? It's probably in many cases longer than the time it will take a quantum computer to decrypt something. And that's what yeah. really got me concerned. And that's, that's certainly true. It'll depend on the organization. Like national security things might be 30 years or longer. Um, financial regulations, you know, maybe they're a little bit shorter, seven years, 10 years, something like that. But since we don't know when a quantum computer will be built, it's, it's hard to judge that risk for sure. But How if it's within that-, that time, you've got a problem. And you may not even be thinking about it today as an IT right. manager or a yep. business yeah. owner. Yeah. You've got a problem, so the- though. You potentially have a problem. And so you need to know 
which crypto systems you're using to encrypt your data. Good news is most of the time data at rest is encrypted using symmetric algorithms like AES. So that should be somewhat protected. But if you created your key using public key cryptography, which is often the case, you know, that might still be a vulnerable a vulnerability there that you have to be aware of. Now, I'm, I'm so fascinated how far in the future we're talking here. I mean, you're, you're trying to look at, you know, these, these, these algorithms today and, and come up with a standard, which is, is no easy task. But, you know, when we talk about quantum, you know, the next 10, 15 years, right, that, that this nut could be cracked. I mean, how, how do you plan that far ahead for what's going to be? I mean, obviously, very smart people like you, but I mean, it's, <laughs> I, my head's exploding just trying to think how, how you can figure that out so far in advance. No, it certainly takes the effort of a lot of people. Um, I have a background in math, but it takes a whole team that we have at NIST and just the whole crypto community in general that is have this problem. And so there's so many different aspects that people are preparing for and, and starting to figure out. So it's, it's selecting the algorithm, but then it's also looking at the Internet protocols like TLS and Internet Key Exchange to make sure that those protocols will be able to handle the new algorithms um, so there's just a whole lot of different pieces, and luckily there's a lot of people that are working on this so that we right. um, everything doesn't go completely broke. And it could take some time, right, for folks to then get the technology and to deploy it, I think is the other piece that I read. So, Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, transitions are slow, especially cryptography transitions. Uh, we've had some in the past where where people have switched from using one type of crypto system like RSA to Elipto, and that can take 5, 10, 15 years to, um, to get all the new crypto systems um, into the products and then get it, it. It's expensive and it can take time. So even if you know that this issue is out there and even if you know we will standardize some new algorithms and you know those it'll still take time to get that transition to occur yeah i'm thinking about ipv4 to ipv6 i mean i've been working that for coming up on it's, it's at least 15 years right and, and mm -hmm. maybe we haven't had that pressing demand to go to ipv6 but we're finally starting as we run out of class c addresses finally starting to see people implement it but I mean, it's been at least 15 years. The other problem mm -hmm. I think we have is something stolen today that has been encrypted in a lower level encryption uh, scheme or mechanism. That could be decrypted five, 10 years from now. And if it was stolen today, the end user who created or contained or owned that, owned that information can't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, That's scary. That's the scary to, piece to me. To some extent. There are things you can do. Like if you do encrypt it with symmetric key cryptography and at least 256 bits, a quantum computer won't be able to touch that for, for several, several decades, if ever. Um, so there are some okay. things you can do to, to get ready and protect, but you have to be aware of that threat and, and take those steps. And that's costly today. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, most organizations don't know all the different crypto systems that they're using in all their different applications. And so that would be a first step is just kind of doing this initial analysis to see what you are using and all your different pieces. Make sure that the people know what the threat is and that this change is going to need to happen. And yeah, and that takes time and, and effort and, and money. So, Dustin, recognizing that NIST has some of the best experts in the world, yourself included in that. If, if I'm an IT manager at, let's say, Treasury, I'll just pick on an agency right now. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And I have concerns about protecting information into the future. What do I do? Can I go to NIST and look up some publications? Do I have a NIST, um, you know, conduit of some sort that I can that I can work with to ensure that my high risk, high value information that needs to be encrypted can be protected today or protected in the best manner possible? Yeah, you you do. So I would start with saying before even worrying algorithms and in the quantum threat make sure you're using the best practice that is out there today and NIST has several standards and guidelines um, letting you know what are the best crypto systems to use and the best way to do that so i would start with that um i would certainly want you to be aware of the the quantum threat um you don't need to panic yet there's still time to prepare and take action um we've been working on our several years and we're going to announce the algorithms that uh, will standardize uh, roughly by the end of this year. And so in not very long at all, you'll have algorithms that you'll be able to transition to that will provide protection from attacks against a quantum computer. Okay. And if you have any questions as well about any of that, you can contact us and we're happy to talk to you directly. Now, doesn't industry have to adopt those algorithms and their products in order to get them out and make it easy for users? Yeah, ostensibly NIST just provides recommendations to the federal government, but we know that those get picked up by private industry uh, in the United States as well as around the the world. And we have definitely seen industry paying attention, even participating in our standardization projects. Many companies, Google, Microsoft, IBM, Intel, they all have researchers that are on some of the teams that have designed these algorithms and are attending the workshops and giving us feedback. So, So they're aware of what's going on for sure. So really, yep. you've got a true agency, government, you know, government agency, private partnership that's working and has been. Yeah, um, we always love getting more feedback about whether these algorithms that we're looking at, if they will fit in your applications and, you know, if they're going to cause any problems so that we know that before we select the algorithms. But we've been happy with the participation and feedback from industry um, that we've been getting. Yes, it's it's a, a good united effort from government from industry and not just in the United States, this has been going on around the world as well. So it's, it's been a pretty cooperative effort. That was Which my next good. question. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, talking about, you think about quantum, is this like the next space race or, you know, kind of the, the first country to figure it out. But to, I think to figure this out, it would take the global cooperation and a lot of different minds to come at it. It's are, do you guys, are there, you know, kind of uh, countries that, are you know you guys have been partners with for a long time or i mean anything in that realm that you can share yeah so the way nist has done some of these larger projects where we basically do we do an international competition where we invite submissions from around the world to send in crypto systems and then we run the process that kind of helps evaluate them and select and standardize them but we've had great cooperation from around the world um europe in particular has been very, very active. They have got a lot of strong cryptographers there. Uh, Japan, South Korea. Um, we do see countries that I'd say have participated a little bit less. Uh, Russia typically does their own thing with regards to standardization. Um, I have seen some presentations that they are aware of the quantum threat and they're coming up with their own internal standards. And similarly, China is doing that as well. Uh, where they did their own internal kind of competition-like process and selected some algorithms. They have participated in our process a little bit, but they, I think, want their own standards for their own national security regions. But otherwise, I would say uh, 
European countries like Germany and Netherlands and France, um, Japan, South Korea, Canada, those are Great Britain. Those are some of the countries that are have a lot of researchers participating in this effort. Nice. So what happens if we don't have that standardization? I mean, I, I, my thought is you can choose one encryption protocol. It's really difficult to do more than one in a, in a given capability or, or, or need, correct? Yeah, we want to keep the, the number of options down to as little as possible. We want to have more than one so that if something gets broken, you have a backup that you can turn to. But otherwise, to favor adopt or to help to help adoption, you want to have a small number of algorithms potentially implement. Yeah, if not, it's the wild wild west. You've got this this fragmented set of of encryption protocols out there. Some products yeah. support one; they don't support the other. You can't decrypt the. It, it makes for a lot of friction in the business. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly why we have um, standards in general, but also in cryptography for this purpose. So that if you want to encrypt something and you want to talk to your bank, they're going to use the same encryption algorithm that your browser uses and it will all work behind the scenes. And uh, by using a standardized algorithm, you can trust that it's an algorithm that's been vetted for security properties and so that it should be reliable. Okay. So will we ever get to a universal standard then? I mean, like one global crypto standard or is that, you know, like let's say it's for consumer devices. I'm making this up. Obviously, I'm not a quantum crypto person, but um, like USB or whatever. I mean, I know that's impossible to get to, but um, if you, it, it seems like, uh, you know, you look at regulations coming out state by state or country by country, it gets really kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot of different algorithms out there. Even without worrying about post-quantum, if you look at encryption, I mean, there are and to start to dominate. Um, AES, I would say, is used by pretty much everyone around the world. But before AES, there was an algorithm called DES and Triple DES, and we still see implementations of it out in the wild. Um, Encryption is not the only crypto capability that's out there. There's also things like digital signatures and there's hash functions. So there's different algorithms for these. So I don't think you'll ever have just one algorithm that that does everything. Um, But we do want to have just kind of the main algorithms that people tend to use uh, that like AES, that they're safe, they're secure, they're efficient, and that you can turn to and everybody else is using them as well. So for for post-quantum, we hope to to keep that up. we have we haven't selected the algorithm, so we can't say exactly how it will uh, turn out. But that that's the goal that we're looking for. Yes. And when do you think you'll select the algorithm? A couple of years. So this process started in 2016 when we announced it, and we initially uh, received about 80 different crypto systems that were sent in to us. And since then, we've been evaluating it in a series of rounds and kind of whittling it down. Um, we went uh, at the end of the first round. We, uh, got it down to 26 algorithms and then into the third round we got it down to 15 algorithms and we think that we'll finish the third round at the end of this year and so we expect to announce at the end of 2021 or maybe early 2022 the algorithms that will be uh, for encryption as well as digital signatures that will provide protection from quantum attacks that's exciting and how many will you get down to when we talk standardization Good question. So we've we've talked already about wanting to have a small number uh, for encryption. We'll have at least one, but it, it'll be more more than one. And the same for digital signatures. It'll likely end up being a two or three um, 
for security reasons, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. So we always want to have something else. But it turns out that some of these post-quantum algorithms are a little bit bigger than what we currently use. So there's different performance trade-offs you can make. And so for some applications, one algorithm might be tailored a little bit better. So there will be a few options uh, that potentially are, are better for different applications as well. But I'd anticipate two to three algorithms for encryption and two to three for signatures. And what you're really saying with that from an efficiency perspective is something's less costly to implement from a, from a using the encryption. It's faster, but it's but it potentially has less capability. It's less secure because it's faster. Well, not so much uh, security. We don't want to standardize anything unless we fully are confident in security. But for example, uh, one of the algorithms is known as Classic McLeese. It has a public key size that's about a megabyte in size. And so that bandwidth applications that have low resources. It has a very small ciphertext, but its public key is huge. Uh, in comparison, there's a, a lattice-based system called Kyber. Its public key and ciphertext are both around 1,000 bytes. So a little bit smaller. Lots maybe you can hit. Yeah, so maybe you can handle that one easier if you have low resources compared to classic McLeese. So why wouldn't you just go with that then? Well, Classic McLeese has much smaller ciphertext size, so maybe your application needs the ciphertext size to be as small as possible. Okay. Uh, there, are, there can be security properties involved. Classic McLeese is an algorithm that's been around for 40 years, so maybe you have a little bit more confidence in its security, whereas some of the lattice-based algorithms we're looking at have been around 10, 20 years. We fully believe they're secure, but maybe if you wanted to be ultra-conservative, you'd want to go with an algorithm that's been around even longer. Is NIST, does NIST do work to then educate the end users, the community, to help them understand the pros and cons of these different algorithms? A little bit. Um, in, our, in our documents where we standardize them, we do provide some recommendations and explanations. Um, but for the most part, I would say the, the end user themselves probably won't get that directly from NIST. Uh, we, we do have reports that explain things. But... End users typically don't need to select their own crypto systems. It's built into them. So if they want to find that information out, they can. But I'd say for the most part, um, they don't need to. So, so my my experience, and, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, somebody gets it into the FAR, the Federal, Federal Acquisition Regulations. And this level of encryption is required in these types of products. All of a sudden, the vendors go out and say, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z if they aren't doing it already, right? It's, it may lead in the commercial space sometimes. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden now, as a, as a vendor to the federal U.S. federal government at least, um, but a lot of times five eyes governments too, you, you've got to meet this specific encryption requirement or yes. requirement, whatever it may be. So who is... Who really drives it then? NIST does all the work and says, this is the quantum proof or, 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 or quantum capable encryption. How do, how do you get it out there? Well, we're publicizing it as much as we can. I've given, uh, it's probably not hundreds yet, but I've given dozens and dozens of talks to different organizations and, and agencies and industries. Uh, Post-quantum cryptography is a very hot topic in cryptography. So yeah. I, I'm sure that certainly not everyone's aware yet, um, but we're just trying to get out there as much as possible so that you're aware of the threat. And then once you start asking questions, you can usually start finding some resources of, of what you should do about that.
Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've been reading so much about it. I feel like more and more in the last year, it, it seems to really be coming top of mind, which is, is wonderful. Cause I, I think something like this, it's so complex, right? I mean, there's a, a mm -hmm. huge education component, I imagine. Yeah, there is, especially when you start talking about quantum computers, which will go right over. I mean, it goes over. I'm not a quantum physicist. There's guys on our team that understand it way better than I do. But this all goes so over your head. It feels so complex and confusing. Um, there's new math that's involved if you're using lattices. I mean, you have no idea what that is. But the, the basic idea is just uh, there's going to be new crypto systems that you're going to need to transition to. Um, there will be implementations out there. And... Yeah, NIST will provide guidance as to when you need to transition and things like that. But the basic idea, I think you can understand, even if you can't wrap your head around all the different math and the complexities. Well, I think that's the important part. And we, and we want to elevate the game because I, I could see a picture where you know, you've got a, an E4 in the Army who's, who's working on a project and his commanding officer says, are we using encryption? Yes, ma'am, we are. And that's end of story. <laughs> But they, that, that's the extent they understand, right? And they, they don't know, you know, what, what are we dealing with here? Yep. Right? Hopefully they get to that next level where they say, and is that encryption quantum resistant? You know, is it protected from quantum attacks? Um, that would be a great next question. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in E4 in 19, uh, well, we'll leave that ago, like 94. And I would have said, uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I suspect the system will have to work to drive this technology out, but it's absolutely needed, as you said, Rachel. Yeah. And so now that you're getting, you'll have your kind of top, top folks for the digital signature encryption algorithm standards. And then what? I mean, so you've worked all these years to kind of get to a standard and then, and then what's the next phase after that? Well, there's always new things in cryptography and we hope to get these first standards out for quantum resistant algorithms but the field itself, there continues to be new research. So we're paying attention to that. We're seeing if there's any new algorithms come along that would be better. Um, I mean, once you've got an algorithm out there that's been implemented in products, it's hard to switch. Right. But we want to keep, keep track of if there are um, better algorithms out there that could be used, new ideas. Um, we have to maintain these documents. We have to keep up with them if there's new attacks um, so that we're always kind of revising them. And then there's always just new functionalities in cryptography to, to work on. There's fully homework encryption. There's privacy preserving techniques using sophisticated. And so there's all standard projects in this that, that we'll have to work on. Wow. Fascinating. It's always evolving, Rachel. It, it really is. I mean, it's just, uh, I can't imagine being part of, you know, kind of a, a profession, where, you know, kind of the next 20, 30 years, you know, you've got a job because it's so critical uh, what they're working on. It's like mortuary sciences. You always have a job. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's just constantly evolving, right? I mean, it's <laughs> somebody breaks the encryption, you need stronger encryption. You stronger encryption, someone's got to keep trying to break it. Will we ever get to a place where... I don't know, let's say encryption is, you know, kind of a light switch change, kind of plug and play. Like, I, I want to change my encryption today. I, I, there's, there's this new encryption that just launched, you know, along with the new Madden game. And, and I just want to, want to switch it out in my, in my products. I mean, it's, is that kind of where we're going to be in the next 50 years where it starts to become incredibly simple? I'll defer to Dustin on that. I, I have seen technology where you get to choose the level of encryption. Mm-hmm. 
right? So you can choose how you want to encrypt the data or the, or the, the transaction or whatever, you know, going back to, to DES, triple DES, uh, the AES, the level of AES. I, I've definitely seen that. I, I've talked to um, developers at organizations I've worked at where we have, where we, we've certainly had the ability to choose different crypto libraries and the like and uh, determine one, what we would implement, but two, where the customer could also just, you know, select what they wanted to do. Um, I, I think it's getting easier, but it's always so interesting how, you know, these these things that start out so so incredibly complex, you know, I mean, and it truly takes a village and decades to to kind of crack the code. And then once you crack the code, I mean, you know, in the next, I don't know, 30, 50 years, you know, does does kind of a, this post-quantum cryptography become kind of a, a plug-and-play application where you're like, oh, hey, you know, it's like the new Madden game just launched. Hey, there's a new new crypto that just launched. I'm going to just, you know, plug it into my quantum laptop and, you know, away we go. I mean, is, is that kind of where, where we might get to? Is that even possible? Uh, it would hopefully be the direction that we do head into. The, the term for that in the past years uh, is known as crypto agility, where you can do exactly what you described. And that's what makes these transitions so hard right now is we do not have that capability. You're using cryptography in many applications. You don't know where it is. You can't just take it out of something easily. So that's some of the recommendations that we give and others right now is as much as possible when designing your new systems, make them as agile as possible so you could do that so that when there is a crypto transition, you can plug and play just like you described with the Madden game and you'll be so much the better for it. Yeah, I found in some places you can choose the level of encryption you want to use in the application. But I'll tell you, email is the one that still kills me. It is so difficult to send an encrypted email to somebody mm -hmm. today. Because right? public-private key, it, it, it's just, you would think we would have solved that one by now. I know, Dustin, that's not your problem to solve. But uh, it's, I, I'm in cryptography and... Okay, I don't have to send encrypted emails very often, but when I do, I still have to look up, how do I do this? Yeah, it has not yet been made user-friendly, so it just works seamlessly. And on the surface, I just want to send something to Rachel that nobody else can read no matter what. It seems so easy, but it's not. Like, it's really, really hard, even for me. You think of somebody like somebody's grandmother who wants to send something, to it's not happening, ever. Well, when you send an email to your bank and you use like the secure messaging inside the app or the browser, it should be encrypted and it should be okay there. So to me, that's a workaround aside from using like Outlook or mm -hmm. talking to somebody's grandmother, right? AOL.com. That's Here true. You go, Mr. Banker. Here's my secret password. That's well, what about, that's what about where like we Signal or Confide? Like I have Signal and yeah, what, what is those apps. Ones? Those apps um, can provide encryption. Yes, but yeah, the average person yeah, who just gets on not running, not leveraging Signal, right? It's it's just not easy. You would you well, would because the message anyway, disappears too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're just gonna have to go back to Morse code and and just exactly. start tapping out everything in Morse code, and then uh, we'll have to do it that way. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I think we just need to unplug, Dustin. I think we need to go back to the Stone Age. <laughs> well, if it doesn't exist, it's definitely safe. Yep. Or if you want to go super secure, you can use uh, what's called the one-time pad, where you you roll dice to get perfect random numbers, converted all the zeros and ones, and if you only use it one time, perfectly secure. You can prove that. 
but it's it's very inefficient to to make that happen in practice. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. We had one time pads in the army. Well, was, and and that was a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, it was slow, Rachel. We used them all the time, though. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine you rolling dice. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have dice. But, I, I but love that visual, though. Dice. That's much more yeah. fun. But Yeah, I'm out yeah. in the field getting shot at. We're rolling <laughs> dice, trying to get the message out as quickly as we can. There was a lot of memorization, though, and, and it, was, it was definitely. And, and you, had to, you had to be able to destroy whether you were going to eat it or burn it or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, the key, basically. Wow. That's why it's one time. You have to use it more than once, and you, you can lose security. <laughs> exactly. Fascinating wow. conversation. I know. I know. All day long. So I know we're coming on, on time. And, you know, my favorite question, there's there's two two question options here, I think, today. Um, first one, do you have optimism, right, for the cyber path ahead? Or option two, I would love your prediction for next year. Like, what do you see evolving? And it, and it could be in cryptography or quantum it could be on anything but i mean what do you see next year yeah what do you see being like really uh of interest next year uh in in the cyber realm and the crypto realm well i do have optimism um i think this post-quantum project will be still of very high visibility and importance next year we'll have named the algorithms we'll be writing up the standard and getting public feedback on that so post quantum cryptography is going to continue to be of interest um but in cryptography there are other topics one of the really interesting ones is called fully homomorphic encryption which is a fascinating idea of you can take your data you can encrypt it you can put it up in the cloud you can do computations on it while it's encrypted get out your answer do whatever data processing you want to do, get the result back to you. It's still encrypted. And then you decrypt it. You see the results and no one else sees, wow. you know, what you were looking for. And there've been some cool mathematical techniques using lattices, which are also used in post quantum cryptography that have someone found a way to do this using lattices. So it's, people are working on that now. It's going to wow. take a while before it's ever efficient, if ever, but uh, there's, there's all sorts of cool topics like that, that, would provide amazing functionality. So cryptographers are got plenty of work for the next while. I bet. I bet. So coming back to one other thing you said, the the naming um, of these uh, these algorithms. Are you going to have like a public call for names? Because they I see them do that on Twitter all the time when there's like a new hippo born at the zoo. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, are you guys going to have anything like that, or is it going to be like some super official governmenty sounding name? Well, in the past, NIST has kind of made up some of the names. AES stands for Advanced Encryption Standard. We did a hash function competition. The winner is now called SHA-3, which stands for Secure Hash Algorithm. We haven't so far came up with any official kind of name like that. Each of the crypto systems that was sent in has its own name that the designers chose. A lot of them have very kind of Star Wars type names. We've got Kyber, Saber, Dilithium. Love it. So it could be that we just end up going with those as the names of the algorithms. Um, and so you'll have a kind of a, a cool way to remember them um, besides just a boring name. Yeah, because we do like our acronyms here. <laughs> mm-hmm. We certainly do. The well, see if the come up. I'll come up with some new ones for you then. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dustin, for joining us today. This has been fascinating conversation. Appreciate Thanks for your having time. me. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, and keep working hard. We need, uh, we need <laughs> the best encryption we can get. Yes. All right, I'll do that. <laughs>
All right, everyone. Until next time, be sure to subscribe, get a fresh episode every week, and we will talk to you next week. week. Yeah. Until then, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.